This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue or two for my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any books for my comic book collection are eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 136th episode of The Quarter Bin, we are looking at Queen and Country, 19 and 20, from Oni Press, both cover dated October 2003. These issues wrap up the five-issue arc, Operation Stormfront. But first, a little feedback. Luke, Jack, and Eddie talked about his feelings of Free Comic Book Day. I've long supported FCBD, and I'm eager to hear about your experiences, Professor. The only tough thing about the day for me is that my LCS has a giant sale every February. So it's a little hard to justify to my family that I want to dig through cheap bins for an hour or two again just a few months later. I get that, buddy. Our LCS does their anniversary sale in March, so it's only six or eight weeks between that and FCBD. The way I think about that is that the anniversary sale is for us regulars and free comic book day. Eh, that's for the dilettantes. That's for the amateurs. That's for the normies. And then after listening to our free comic book day episode, Luke added, Professor, I have to applaud your dedication to being cheap. I don't know that I would have had the miserly fortitude to find an LCS to hit while driving across state lines to help with a family move. That's funny. My wife has similarly strong feelings about that, though uh, she doesn't put it with as much panache as you do, Luke. I think miserly fortitude. I can go with that. (laughs) As was the case last year, Luke said, my family and I made a quick stop into my favorite LCS, Borderlands, in Greenville, South Carolina, where we picked up our freebies. Then he talks again about the big sale they have before Free Comic Book Day and his family and all of that. So he said uh, they just stopped in quickly, but just as well as the store was (laughs) jam-packed. From Borderlands, Luke picked up the Valiant Bloodshot Special Spider-Man slash Venom, Doctor Who and The Tick. The Bloodshot Special was excellent with original prologues for the upcoming new Bloodshot series and the just-started Fallen World miniseries. Like you, I liked the Peter and Miles story from the Spider-Man book, but the prologue for the Absolute Carnage series was a big hit with me. But then again, Luke does confess, I've been a Venom fan for nearly 30 years. I'm probably more prone. (laughs) Doctor Who was light, but not bad. I mostly picked that one up for my friend Kevin, a lifelong Whovian. Similarly, I always enjoy The Tick on Free Comic Book Day, but I picked up this issue in particular for my brother, who is a big Tick 
aficionado. I also have coming via my mail-order comic service, Ghost Hog and the Descendants. That one's for the kids. Ghost Hog is the new book by Eisner Award-nominated comics creator Joey Weiser, who also did the artwork for Earth Destruction Directive. Oddly, Joey was in town for a signing, but not at Borderlands, but at Greenville's other LCS, Richards, which is about a quarter of a mile away from Borderlands. See, Luke, Luke, Luke. Why don't you just hit both? I'm asking you. It doesn't seem like, like it would take a lot of miserly fortitude to pull that one off. Luke continues that his kids grabbed various books, including Avengers, Star Wars Adventures, Malika, Under a Moon, a preview of DC's young adult Catwoman, OGN, TMNT, Street Fighter, and others. Personally, I was a little annoyed that Archie had a Riverdale book rather than a traditional Gals and Pals book, but that's modern Archie for you. My oldest son wanted to get the Vampirella book, but it looked a bit too teen for an 11-year-old, so I said no on that one, but overall, the kids enjoyed picking out their own comics from the giant rack. Yes, Luke just did use the words Vampirella and Giant Rack in the same paragraph. Well done, my friend. Well done. Anyway, Luke concludes, Great to hear that UNM had a successful free comic book day. Here's to many more. Thanks, Luke. As Luke referenced there, he is the host of the Daikaiju podcast, Earth Destruction Directive, on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Uh, Dr. Ange also let us know about his experiences on the holiday. My store allows two of the FCBD books per person, but has a couple of long boxes of dollar box or bargain bins that you're able to also take two from. It just means that I don't get to sample as many of the regular free comic book day stuff that I'd like to. I wish the store would have some deal for us regulars to get a couple more. So the ones that I picked up were JLA, the All Ages book, and Robotech. And it pains me, pains me, Ange says, that of the veritable stack of books you obtain, that Robotech was not one of them. And I will tell you that the Robotech book was original material, opening up the next arc, and had an absolutely incredible cliffhanger. Glad the trip went well. Always enjoy hearing your take on all the books I can't get. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Doctor. The thing is, I didn't want to get in the way of the Dr. Ange, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Stella love triangle. Well, I mean, I guess it's more of a hate triangle. No, I don't think that's right either. Um, it's more of an annoyance triangle between those three as regards Robotech and Dana Sterling. And then there's the fact that I've never watched or read a single iota of Robotech in my more than half a century on the planet. There's that, too. And given the fact that there's only one 25-cent bin in the entirety of New England, 
which I only believe because Nathaniel Wayne once sent me a receipt from that store. I'm not surprised that your store only lets you grab two of the free books, although the extra two books from the 90 stuff we can't sell anyway, so we try to literally give it away box. I mean, I guess that helps. <laughs> uh, last episode received social media love from Trennis Magnus himself, Pat from the Long Box Crusade, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Paul from the Collected Edition podcast, Countess Ruth and Count Darren from Warlord Worlds, Ed Moore, Kirk Spencer, a.k.a. Big Five Army, Sean from the Nerdy Dads show, Karen from Between the Pages, where pop culture and food meet, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, and from Paul the Book Guy, formerly of the Book Guy show, where I got my podcasting start. If you're sick of me, blame him. His new effort is Robot Gift Shop, which sells geeky products and artwork, much of which is Paul's own original work. Art, books, audiobooks, all that stuff will be there when the site is fully launched on or around July 1st, 2019. But you can go there now and see what's what at robotgiftshop.com. And we heard from Laurel, a.k.a. Mountainflower1 from the Batgirl Huntress podcast. Thanks to everybody for your support. In the interest of full disclosure, I've read the entire series of Queen and Country up to the start of this arc. I got a really good deal on the first two trades somewhere along the line before I ever saw these issues in quarter bins and really dug them. Now, because Queen and Country is designed to be serialized storytelling, let me give you a brief intro to the overall series and who some of the major players are. The series takes place within the British Special Intelligence Service, known as SIS, or colloquially as MI6. This is the Foreign Intelligence Service of the Government of the United Kingdom, tasked mainly with covert overseas collection and analysis of human intelligence, called in the service HUMINT, in support of UK's national security. The details differ based on the structure of their respective governments, and legal systems, but the organization is the rough equivalent to the CIA of the United States in the U.S. The current head of the CIA is Gina Haspel, the first woman to hold that position. But back to Britain, SIS, or MI6, is a member of the UK's intelligence community, and its chief is directly accountable to the country's foreign secretary, who would roughly be the equivalent of the American Secretary of State, and just for context, that as of this recording is Mike Pompeo. Specifically, onto the comic book series Queen and Country. The central character is Tara Chase, an operative of the Special Operations Section of SIS, a position colloquially known as a minder. She is one of the three minders in her section, codenamed Minder 2. She is entering her third year on the job. Tom Wallace is Minder 1, a six-year veteran of the service, who is the head of the minders, the head of the special section. Edward Kettering 
is Minder 3 and is a rookie still in his first year in the section. The Minders, their direct supervisor, is the director of operations, Paul Crocker, who oversees all of the individual foreign stations in the service. Above him is Deputy Chief of Service Donald Weldon, who oversees all aspects of intelligence gathering and operations. And the person at the top of the pyramid, the current head of SIS slash MI6, is always known by the codename C, and that position in the comics is currently Sir Wilson Stanton Davis. And because this is not just a spy story, but also a workplace drama, mention should be made of Crocker's personal assistant Kate, mission control officer Alexis, and duty operations officer Ron. Now, each issue of the comic includes a roster of characters with most of this information that I've just given. That's usually what is on the inside back cover. So... The information I just went over is not a spoiler. If you picked up any issue of the title, you'd get most of that information. So let's turn to this storyline, this arc, Operation Stormfront. I ended up nabbing four of the five issues in the arc. So here are a brief synopsis of issues 16 and 18. And I think we'll probably be able to figure out what happened in 17. And then we'll give fuller coverage to the final two issues of the arc, which are the issues that we are officially, quote-unquote, covering in this issue. That's 19 and 20. So for context, here's a bit of what happened in 16 at the start of the arc. In Caracas, Minder 3, Ed Kittering, who had been in a relationship of sorts with Tara Chase, is found dead in his hotel room, seemingly from natural causes. The other two minders, Tara and Tom Wallace, both want to head immediately to Venezuela to see what's going on. But another case needs the minders' attention. A kidnapping in Tbilisi, Georgia. Paul Crocker goes to the training school and selects a young man, Brian Butler, as a potential new minder, a replacement for the late Kittering. Now jumping to issue 18, I think we can sort of fill in a a, a blank or two. The autopsy in Venezuela reveals Kittering's death as natural. But Tom Wallace, Minder 1, still wants to go and verify everything himself. It's the death of a co-worker, someone in his position. That's understandable. Evidently, Brian Butler's training went really well because he is now Minder 3, and he and Tara head to Tbilisi, and he is kind of weirded out about sharing a hotel room with her which is strictly for budgetary purposes. Brian and Tara have a meeting with a Georgian officer, which does not go well, ending with a vague threat against them. She calls London for instructions, which she never ever does. That's how worried she is about this Tbilisi kidnapping. It's revealed that the kidnapped businessman has connections to Crocker. When he was a field agent, the businessman's father was a would-be defector who died under Crocker's watch. So as the two minders head to station to get weapons, they are sideswiped by a van, and men with guns are coming at them. Brian is badly injured at the very least. And that brings us 
to our first official book for the episode, Queen and Country 19, at a cover price of $2.99, meaning I acquired this book at a very reasonable 91.5% markdown. The cover, by Carla Speed McNeil, shows a couple of scenes laid over each other. The central figure is Crocker, the director of operations. In the background, we see a hand on barbed wire, as if climbing a fence, blood dripping. And as always, the blood-spattered Queen and Country logo sits at the top of the page. The story, Stormfront Part 4, was written by Greg Rucka and illustrated and lettered by Carla Speed McNeil. If I haven't said it yet, Queen and Country is a black-and-white comic. We start on a street in Tbilisi in an upside-down car. Three masked men with guns are approaching. Tara looks at her new partner, curses, and tells him she's sorry. Blood appears to be draining from his ear, and that can't be good. Tara gets out of the car, tries to stare down the gunman, but in her condition, she has no chance. Shut up and help us get her into the truck. You can't do this. I'm a British citizen. She is punched in the gut with a very loud, shut the bleep up, you bleep. I mean, they didn't actually say bleep. You understand, right? He, in fact, used some very bad gender-specific words. So, in addition to being a terrorist and a kidnapper, he's a misogynist. That's, I think, even worse. One of the gunmen joins the driver in the front of the truck while two grab her into the back. We're going to ride with her. We'll keep her alive. But we're just going to soften her up a little bit. As one of the guys tells the other to grab her legs and get her pants off, the muzzle of his weapon pushes across her chest. She grabs at the trigger, killing one of the men, and in the shock of the aftermath, grabs the gun from the first guy and kills him. The guy's last dying words are holy bleeping bleep. I mean, he didn't actually say bleep, you know. The two guys in the front of the truck hear the commotion, but before they can decide what to do, bullets come flying at them from the back, killing the driver. The lone surviving gunman calls into his boss, terrified. No, listen to me. One of them got away. The woman got away. She killed Dacha and... No, the other one's dead. But she took Max's rifle. I mean, she can't have gotten far. Tara has, in fact, ducked down an alley and loses her jacket. She removes her top and wipes the blood off her face, putting the shirt back on inside out. She brushes her hair back and puts it up in a ponytail. Casually... She hops on and off a few buses and finds herself walking into a ladies-only gym where the person on the front desk can speak English. You're British, correct? We don't get a lot of British women, mostly American. Tara agrees to sign up for a membership, which is the only way she can buy any workout clothes or workout kit, as she calls it. The desk clerk starts the paperwork while Tara finds a semi-private telephone. It's the best she can do. Black total. Repeat, black total. Tara says she needs to come in and gives her location. 12 minutes, green Mercedes. She waits, the car comes, and she hops right into it. 
Back in London, a phone rings next to Crocker's bed. Stormfront's gone black. One fatality. Two or three, he asks, and is told that the new guy, Butler, Minder 3, is the one who died. Bring in Minder 1, wake up the deputy chief, and inform the FCO. I'll be there in 40 minutes. At the office, Crocker gets the update. Ambush, sir. They were rammed in their cars. They left the hotel to meet with the station. Minder 3 was killed in the collision. Minder 2 got knocked for a loop. Everyone is expecting the mission to be aborted, but Crocker instead sends a message asking for Tara's assessment. Tom Wallace, Minder 1, calls him out. You can kill the whole special section, and it won't bring Valerie Carpin back. Carpin is the name of the defector, the kidnapped victim's father. Crocker gets called up to the deputy chief's office, and he is informed that the head of the SIS, he's the one always codenamed C, has had a stroke and won't be returning to work. With that delicate situation at the top, they can't afford to lose another minder. So the deputy, who is now the acting chief, orders Crocker to abort the Tbilisi mission. In Georgia, Tara gets the message at the station. You've been recalled. We can move as soon as you're ready. Rotten luck. I'm sorry. But in the last few panels, Tara says she's not going anywhere because it's not safe. Told that leaving is the safest option available, Tara disagrees. It'll be much safer when I found Lasha Carpin. The end. Now, I'm going to do the analysis of the two issues together after the break, so I'm just going to roll right into the next issue. The credits for Queen and Country 20 are identical to those for 19, and the only minor change is that this story is called Stormfront Part 5. The cover, again by McNeil, is awesome. It shows Tara, face bruised from last episode's beating, walking towards us with purpose. And she's holding about, I'd say, a six-foot length of iron chain. And let's just say she seems committed to a task. It is a frightening and awesome cover. We start in the London station where Crocker's personal assistant, Kate, has brought him Butler's file. She sees some of the pictures and is shocked. He was hit, Crocker explains, with a truck. Somehow Chase is fine. A call comes into the office that Chase is refusing to abort the mission. She's claiming it's not safe enough to travel. Crocker considers this. If that's what she's saying, we'll have to take her word for it. After all, she's the one in the field, isn't she? He excuses himself and heads to the ops room. In Tbilisi, Chase is reviewing information with the head of mission there. She reviews a map and requests info about one of the inspectors of the local police, a name she heard her attackers use. Find out what the marriage is like. See if you can get me a picture of the wife. Do it quick before dark. The sooner you find this stuff out, the sooner I'm out of your hair. And that's what you and your number one want, isn't it? To get the minder in your midst gone as soon as possible. Back in London, Minder 1 and Crocker chat about the situation in Georgia. Minder 1 realizes the code in the message that was sent to Tara. 
Return London? Safest route? Come on, boss. You know you actually just told her to stay. They argue that no minder would allow themselves to be pulled out. If it were you there, and minder three had been killed, would you have just dropped it and come home too? Minder one dodges the question, pointing out that they'll be down to just him if things go poorly. Crocker explodes at him, saying he's seeing ghosts down every corridor. Do you for one minute think I don't know what I'm doing, what I'm asking? Back in Tbilisi, Chase gets info on the wife and tells the station chief he's clear. I'm running alone from here on out. He wishes her luck, but reminds Chase that he and his people still have to live in Georgia. After she finishes whatever it is she's going to go do. What she's going to go do is kidnap the wife, but Tara treats her with some kindness, not stuffing her in the trunk after a particular revelation. Please, the wife says, I have baby. Have baby inside me. Please don't hurt. Ah, bleep and bleep, Tara says. Well, I mean, she didn't, didn't actually say bleep. The husband is called the police inspector, and after the wife speaks, Tara uses the phone. I've got your wife. You've got until 8 in the morning, unless Lasha Carpin is released and walks into his business office by then. I'll kill her. Simple as that. The pregnant wife sleeps on a sofa, Tara pulling an all-nighter with a pistol always nearby, usually tucked into her pants. In the morning, at the offices of Carpin, he is pushed out of the back of a van, and his mom rushes out to greet him, which is kind of sweet. About the only sweet thing in this story, as a matter of fact, Chase gets a call from the inspector, who calls her a bleeping bleep and a bleep bleeper. I mean, he didn't actually say bleep, you know. She calls the business office to confirm that Carpin has arrived safely, then walks out of the safe house, where she was keeping the inspector's wife, tossing a set of keys to the pregnant woman as she exits, Tara calls out to her. The car's around back. The end. Are you Batman? Oh, oh you must be, because that's Robin. Hi, Robin. Yes, Batman and Robin are here. And Tim and Paul are also here to evaluate the Batman TV show that took the nation by storm in 1966. How in the name of purple wombats do they manage it? To the Batpoles podcast looks at the writing, the music, the guest stars, how the show fit into its times, and much more. Look for it wherever you get podcasts or at tothebatpoles.libsyn.com. What better way to enjoy the show's 50th anniversary than with To The Bat Poles podcast? Gosh, yes, Batman. When you put it that way... And we're back. Let's not mess around with this one, okay? There's no reason to pretend, no reason to delay the inevitable. This is a terrific series a really good storyline, and a pair of excellent issues. I I just wanted to cut to the chase on that. Now, as soon as the series came out, it received much critical acclaim. In 2002, Queen and Country won the Eisner Award for Best New Series and was also nominated for Best Continuing Series. That award 
Best Continuing Series. It was also nominated for that in 2004. In terms of the individual storylines, the first, third, and fourth arcs, comprising issues 1 through 4, 8 through 12, and 13 through 15 respectively, were all nominated for Best Serialized Story. And the fact that this one was not nominated, I chalk up to voters being bored with nominating it. And not so much a statement that the quality of the comic had slipped. I'm a big fan of Rucka's writing, especially of the non-hero variety. Although his contributions to the Bat books in the 2000s are exemplary. But I really like his more grounded real-world books. The two Whiteout miniseries done with artist Steve Lieber about law enforcement in and around Antarctica are terrific. Thanks go out to Dragon Con's Michael Bailey for gifting me with both of those whiteout trades when I met him a few years back in Atlanta, which is a place I really want to go back to. And actually, the book nook is the place I really want to go back to. But anyway, of course, along with co-writer Ed Brubaker, Rucka also gave us Gotham Central, another series focusing more on the nuts and bolts of law enforcement. Although that one did interact a little bit with the Batman world on occasion. But I think he's at his best when he's just doing law enforcement or spy stuff. The more traditional thriller type of story. Now I have to admit I was a little intimidated to start reading this title before I stumbled across a few of the trades for cheap. Because anytime I'd think about it, I'd remember that Rucka also wrote three novels about Terra Chase. A Gentleman's Game, Private Wars, and The Last Run that do, in various ways, tie into the comic series. And that tripped me up, this idea that I'd have to read comics and novels to get the whole story. I don't mind reading novels. That's not what I'm saying. But the specific ones were not readily available to me at the time. And then also the thought of, like, jumping back and forth between comics and books, that this novel fits in between this storyline. I wasn't so sure about that. So I put off reading the comics for a long time. It's that darn completionist gene, I suppose. But fortunately, my cheapness gene won out. At the point that I saw those first few trades, and at the price point, that I found those first few collections, I could not resist. I don't think I've read any of Rucka's novels, not counting the No Man's Land novelization, but I think my father has. He liked thrillers and spy stories, and said he thought he liked the ones that he's read when I asked him about some of Rucka's prose fiction. So eventually, I imagine I will read some of that as well, read some of his prose fiction. I know a few of my comic book-loving buddies are not wild about their comic writers doing other type of writing, like novels or TV, for example, movies, but I have no problem with it. I welcome novelists to the world of comics and vice versa. If you're a good writer, telling a good story, the specific medium doesn't matter all that much to me. Because as we've said many times over here at Relatively Geeky, it's one of our mantras. Comics are a medium, not a genre. Comics can be used to tell any kind of story, memoir, 
biography, history, slice of life, superhero, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, humor, and crime, and spy stories. The fact that nobody has any powers beyond those of mortal man, no alien births, no gamma rays in this series, that's just fine with me. I got no problem whatsoever with that. In issue one of Queen and Country, Greg Ruck acknowledges the British show The Sandbaggers as a specific inspiration. That show was aired on ITV between 1978 and 1980. And I just assume that the Sutherlands are not just familiar with the show, but are best friends with the head writer and have photos of themselves with every single person in the cast. I mean, just saying. By the way, Queen and Country has been optioned twice for film development, with Ellen Page slated to star in one version as Tara Chase, and Ridley Scott set to direct a different version. But despite this activity, there's no evidence that a film is anywhere near pre-production, much less actual production. You know, I just realized I'm pretty sure I have not talked about these two issues yet, so I probably ought to do that at least just a little bit. Now, sometimes here on the Quarterbin, when I've put off talking about the comics in question, it's because they haven't been all that good. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Tail Gunner Joe. But that is definitely not the case with these issues, because these are excellent. The plot itself, the case that Tara is working on, it's realistic. Kidnapping for profit is a legitimate thing in some parts of the world. And where that happens, the government often looks the other way if it's not specifically involved in the kidnapping. Especially in the world after the fall of communism, a lot of the Soviet republics and satellite states just didn't know how to be anything that we'd recognize as developed or modern governments or economies and cops on the payroll of the mob. Let's just say Rucka was not going too far out on a limb with that bit of story. And the spycraft seemed very reasonable. I mean, maybe a bit heightened, I suppose. Like police stories, spy novels do tend to cut out the mind-numbingly boring parts of the job, which can give the impression then that the job is nothing but action. But there are codes and secret communications and safe houses and such. Nothing too crazy, nothing too unbelievable, much more John Carré than Ian Fleming, if I can put it that way. And that worked for me. One of the strong bits of this to me is when Crocker tells Chase to absolutely not pursue the case, and to come home as soon as possible. If anyone in the room were interrogated, they would testify to that, and they would pass the polygraph if it came to that. But he knew what he was doing. Chase knew what he was doing. Even Minder One knew what he was doing. He was giving her carte blanche with complete plausible deniability. And if that is not a spot-on characterization of a middle management government functionary, I don't know what it is. Because that was terrific. In any other type of narrative, the death of Minder 3 in Venezuela would have been the plot. 
If not, it would have been a serious B-plot. It certainly would not have been an actual death by natural causes. In spy fiction, that stuff just doesn't happen. Things happen for a reason. But as far as we can tell at this point, through the end of the arc, and issue 20 is as far as I've read in Queen and Country, there's nothing more to it than that. And that misdirection, that subversion of expectations, it's just really good writing. Let's be honest, comics can be a little formulaic at times, a little predictable. But Queen and Country may be many things, but predictable is not one of them. Now, I do have the first couple issues of the next series, issues 21 and 22, so I'll probably talk about them on an upcoming comics reading journal. And it will be interesting to see if the Venezuela story is dropped or if it does come to the fore. But you'll have to listen to another podcast to get that answer. I do need to mention the ending, because this story just ends. I don't know if it was an homage to the great movie, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, based on the novel by the aforementioned legendary spy novelist John Le Carre, but it certainly was reminiscent of that and how abruptly it just ends. The case is all that matters. That is the story. And when that story is done, the comic is done. It just ends. There's no denouement, no resolution. We really don't know what happens. Chase is still in Tbilisi for crying out loud. But the mission is done, and it's been done successfully. The man has been freed. That's the job of Terra and the Minders at MI6. And that was the job of Greg Rucka as well. And when it was over, it was just over. There is a very small character bit that I want to mention that I skipped over in the synopsis of the books. In the first issue of the arc, Tara has quit smoking and is dedicated to the cause. Minder One, matter of fact, sort of teases her about it, tempting her about it. But she tells him what to do with his cigarette because she's not a smoker anymore. And then Minder Three dies. And then she heads to Georgia, and then she's kidnapped, and then, and then, and then. And by the time she's at the Georgia station, she's smoking. Heavily. Nothing is said about it. Nobody points it out. It's not in a caption box, but it is clearly there. A nice visual bit of storytelling. I mentioned Gotham Central a few minutes back. That series had gotten up and running about six months before these issues came out. Q&C started in early 2001 in Gotham Central in early 2003. I don't have any evidence or corroboration for the following supposition, other than it being very obvious. And that is that I'm certain that the quality and critical appeal of Queen and Country led to him and Brubaker being able to pitch DC on Gotham Central and get it made. I think possibly DC may have approached them. Rucka had written some Batman already, but this, and Whiteout as well, must have convinced DC that there was room in their product line for a police procedural-based series, and that Rucka could be part of the team that pulled that off. One of the things that was done with this title was that they had a separate artist for each arc, and I don't know if that was specifically a Greg Rucka idea or if Oni or the, the editors came up with that, 
These are the only five issues in this run drawn by this artist, Carla Speed McNeil. And you can make the obvious joke about an artist named Speed probably not missing her deadlines. McNeil's chief work is the ongoing science fiction comic series Finder, which she began self-publishing in the mid-90s. In 2005, she started to publish Finder as a webcomic. The comic was published and available to read on her website until Dark Horse started publishing it in 2011. Now, for me, the artist has a different job in a black-and-white comic than they do in a color comic. In a black-and-white book, to me, I'm sorry, job number one is to keep the character straight. It's possibly just me. It's probably just me. I admit that. But sometimes with black-and-white comics, I do kind of struggle to tell characters apart. Not having those color cues makes it a bit of a struggle. You know, I was recently reading a Challengers of the Unknown showcase, and in that book, because it's black and white, you miss one of the key design elements, and that is that each Challenger has a different hair color, brown, black, red, and blonde. That's an extreme case, of course, but still, not having color in hair or clothing does have the potential to make reading a little tricky if you don't have those cues. And that's especially true in real-life grounded stories like this where there aren't costumes or capes or zombies or vampires. But it's all just, you know, normal-looking human people. And in this category, the ability to distinguish the characters from each other, I give McNeil a very high grade. That's the strength of the work. And as I said, it's the most important part of a black-and-white comic to me, so that's a big deal. In other aspects of comics art, like storytelling or design elements, McNeil isn't as strong in those areas. One of the things that Rucka does in this series is often give us a silent page, could be four, six, nine panels, something like that, just to show some action. And McNeil was not as strong on those panels. But that's just one or two pages per issue, so it's not a big deal in terms of detracting from my enjoyment of reading the book. And one thing I do want to point out to give McNeil credit that I didn't really mention in the story summary was that when Tara was kidnapped by the Georgians, she was beat up pretty good. Blood on her face, which she later wipes off, and then bruises and cuts appear. And after those events, those bruises and scrapes are always there in every panel of Tara. That stuff is there. And here's the key. It's consistent artistically. Those elements don't migrate across her face. They don't appear and disappear. And you all know that. You've all read as many comics as I have. We've seen details like that come and go or wander from panel to panel to move around their location. But Carla Speed McNeil does an excellent job keeping Chase's scars and bruises consistent. And that is worth noting. The verdict on Queen and Country 19 and 20, Greg Rucka writing about spies. That should be enough to determine the judgment. No doubt, this is a great title from a great writer, a couple of really strong issues. These are total quarter bin deals. I was shocked when I found these at the magic price point at World's Greatest Comics, from which I grabbed 
remember, a half dozen, ten issues or so, something, as many as they had. Because I've never seen any there again, and I've never seen anything from this title in any other cheap bin, or at least bins that cheap. I heartily recommend picking these up if you ever find them at a decent price, or even if you see the trades at a good sale price. Or check the public library for those. These are excellent, excellent comics. That wraps up our coverage of Queen and Country 19 and 20, bringing episode 136 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. Next time, we'll be examining a genre of comic I really dig, extra-sized Bronze Age sci-fi, with Time Warp number one from DC Comics, cover dated November 1979. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode or Greg Rucka or Spy Comics, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.